Welcome back to Killer Fun. I'm Christy. I'm Jackie. And we're so glad you're back with us today. It's nice to be back after a little bit of a break. It feels like forever since we recorded. It wasn't it forever? <laughs> it seems like it was last year. Oh, you did it. You uh, made that joke. Uh, uh, I did. I made it. <laughs> no, it does feel like a long holiday break. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was needed though. Oh, yeah. I needed it for sure. For sure. Yeah. yeah. It was actually nice to have the kids home. Yeah. You know, I felt like um, we needed some time to just hang out, to let hobbies flourish for a bit, to just refocus. And, you know, then about two days before it was time to go back to school, I was just so, like, ready for them to go. <laughs> yes. I love them. I do. But they needed to expand their mind somewhere else. Uh-huh. Yes. Because I got to that place, and now mine, they're, they're like preteen and teenager. Yeah. And I I got to the place where I no longer could even go to the bathroom without being bothered and I thought we've regressed. Oh yeah, yeah. no yeah, no 13-year-old can leave you alone. I know, but they got questions and then they just want to and you're like I'm glad you have questions, but right now Mm-hmm. Is anybody bleeding? Yeah. <laughs> like choking, dying. <laughs> My rule is that if I'm in disposed and you have to ask me the answer is no so don't ask me unless you want the answer to be no yes Uh yes that's so true although i don't know how many times they come and they join me uh outside the door and it's an existential crisis that they're having and you're like oh just you know what go turn the coffee pot on we'll be in a very minute (laughs) yeah All right, before we get started on the staircase, which because we had such a nice long break, we had the opportunity to watch an entire mini series of a documentary, which was The Staircase, which is Michael Peterson and the death of his wife. Kathleen Peterson. Before we do that, I want to shout out uh, Michelle Donnelly, who is the author of Unsub Central, which is a blog that talks about all kinds of crime stuff. I had asked if anybody had anything else we'd like to cover, and she said, I said, well, I think we got the owl theory down, which we'll get to the owl theory. <laughs> I can't wait to get to the owl theory. <laughs> she said, don't forget about the life insurance. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll, we'll get there. That's you know what? That should always be a player. And well, anyway, we'll get there. But I got I got uh, stuff we'll to say there. about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, <laughs> and I wanted to tell you, I've specifically not told you, you and I have chatted pretty much all day and I've specifically not told you because last time that we recorded a full episode, you told us that you liked the show about the airplanes. Oh, yes. Um, Air disasters. Air disasters. (laughs) Okay. So there is a really cool podcast called Uncover. And they did, um, it was so good, a a whole season on escaping Nexium, which is, have you heard of Nexium? Uh The host interviewed a woman who had been like a high up in Nexium, which is a cult in case you don't know. And it's spelled all kinds of weird. Not like the... No, it's not. It's like, well... Not like the medication it's spelled like with... There's no vowels and V's and X's. No, it's like a teenager texted it to someone. Uh That's what it looks like. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So they did that. But then the season they did right after that was called 
bomb on board. Ooh! Well, I, mean, I shouldn't go, ooh! <laughs> but I think you would really like it. It was super well done about an air disaster. Canadian Pacific Flight 21 had a bomb in it, and it crashed in 1965. Yes, I think air disasters have actually covered this oh. one. It's interesting how many crashes that I know of, but uh-huh. I, I can't get enough of it. I don't know what it is, the investigative portion of it or something, but man, I'd like it's to check like that out. It's like six or eight episodes. Ooh, now that's and good. Yeah, I, I was like thinking that. it would be perfect for you because you spend so much time in the car and you would really, really like it. Well, I am going it's to check that out. super really well done. Oh, thank you. I just couldn't get enough of it. Okay, so. well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go start listening to it and then I'll, I'll and report back. Oh, it's so human too. Yeah. Like they talk, like talk to family members and they're trying to figure out who did it and then they're but they're really careful because they don't want to upset families and it was really good oh well i'm so, gonna check it out thank you yeah so now the staircase michael peterson his wife died i'm i'm i have opinions strong opinions no you have wishy-washy opinions i do kind of have wishy-washy opinions as to whether whether he did it whether he premeditated it. I, I think that there could be a case to be made either way. I mean, maybe maybe he did it and it was kind of accidental. Maybe they got into an argument. I don't know. We'll get into all that. So I thought, I kind of laid out what I, I thought we would talk about the stuff that's in the documentary. Okay. And then we'll talk about the stuff that's not in the documentary. Because I really think that that's the most important thing. Because if you watch this... If you just watch, if all you know is the documentary, Mm -hmm. it's a shock that, spoiler alert, he's convicted. Yes, and he had a new trial in 2011. Yeah. So, well, no. But he had a hearing in 2011. We'll get to all that. Right, right. He was granted a new trial after the judge determined that uh, the witness had lied on the stand. But uh, he was sentenced to time already served. Mm-hmm. Um, that is spoiler alert, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, no, the, the Staircase documentary, may I use the word? It was a bias. Yes, and I don't think it was maybe intentionally biased, and not necessarily by the filmmaker. We'll get to why the editor might have had a uh, bit of a bias. Ooh. So I thought a really chilling thing that he said in the very first episode was... That was the last time I saw Kathleen alive. No, she was alive when I found her, but barely. And I was like, well, was she dead or was she not dead? It was really, that just like chilled me. Hearing him say it like that, she was dead. Oh, no, wait. I've already told people she was alive. And it was almost like he was trying to keep his story straight. Yeah. You know, when I heard that, I went through a myriad of kind of thoughts because at first it did sound suspicious. Mm -hmm. But then I kind of thought about the fact that when you find somebody in a critical condition, um, one of the things people do is they try to help and then they die and they feel like they failed. And so people are told, including EMTs, they were, she was already gone. Yeah. There's nothing you could do. The, the prognosis was death. You tried, but she was already really gone by the time you really administered help, even though they look alive. And so I read a fantastic book on about an EMT's mm-hmm. story. And this was kind of part of what he talked about in the beginning. And so I thought, maybe that. Maybe it's that 
he he found her. He she was dead, but not technically. But but his yeah, reconciliation so yeah. was that I couldn't help her because she yeah. was really already gone, even though she looked alive. Yeah, even though she was technically still alive, she there was nothing you could do to help her. Yeah. Right. So I, I okay. went through both thoughts. Yeah. Okay. Well, so dovetailing right into that, what did you think about the nine one one call? Um, because I'm having a hard time deciding whether it really felt and sounded genuine. Now, I caveat that with how people react in an extreme circumstance like that is not how you would necessarily expect them to act and not necessarily how they would act were they not under such pressure. Right. A 911 call, so that's hard because yeah. you're right. There's so much going through a person at the time. You know, do they really understand the gravity of the situation at the moment? Right. Does he really know she's going to die? Or does, does he realize later that, that she was. Yeah, but he hung up on him twice. He did. And you're running around. It's possible. Uh, you're running around. Yeah. You're, you're confused. Um, but I, I didn't like it. Can no, I say that? No. Can I say that it just yeah. hit me weird? Um, yeah. It felt like an act a little bit. Well, the whole, no. Yeah. Well, the whole thing kind of. <laughs> well, and he is acting for the camera. A little bit. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I get the impression from him that that he's not um, a genuine person. Mm, in a lot of ways. That's very true. In a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, no matter what happened, it's pretty clear that she didn't deny, didn't die in the initial fall because there was blood on the bottom of her feet. And a blood spatter and blood being dry comes up pretty quickly. Yeah. So quickly in the in the documentary. Yeah. So I was like, how fast does blood really dry? Good question. Because the EMTs Every single one of them who talked to the documentary or testified on the stand, all of them said the blood was dry when they got there. Mm-hmm. That's how fast? Yeah, how fast? So basically, there's no one answer. But what I found was that it depends on the surface on which it has landed, how much blood there is, the heat and humidity of the crime scene. All of that has... A, makes a difference it comes into play so no matter how it happens it's going to dry around the edges first and then it's going to go into the middle so it depends on a person's blood but only minorly but the clotting patterns in the blood can help provide information to nail down the time so uh, clotting begins within three to 15 minutes after it exits the body. Okay, three? Three. To 15? To 15 is when it starts to clot. It feels like a very big range. Well, and again, it depends on, that's taking into account, you know, maybe a dry, hot environment where it lands on a solid surface. Okay, so in the desert, it's going to dry a lot faster sure. than if it, I don't know, somewhere humid and on carpet and all of those things are going to make a difference that's why there's such a big range okay so okay so that includes all factors that's and that's just like starting to clot okay not not necessarily drying okay so the amount of blood that was on the scene given that they were in north carolina 
which can be pretty... It was December, so it can be pretty dry. But it's still fairly humid. Yeah. I mean, it's not like deep south kind of humid. Right. But it, it is fairly humid. Yeah. And so, they had doors open. Yes. So because they had been outside. Yes. And so who knows what the house felt like. Yeah. It's it's hard to know. Mm-hmm. But I, it's, I would say it's safe to say she was there for a fairly significant amount of time if the blood was all completely dry. Now, to that point, he had himself admitted she went in first. Right. And he stayed outside. Right. For a little while. And he was drinking, and while he was a drinker, he had had issues with drinking. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, who knows how much time he actually spent out there. He had estimated, right, like, what, 20 minutes-ish? But, nevertheless. Yeah, I mean... Even that, it really seemed like he didn't know for sure. No. And so he, it could have been longer than he had thought. Right. So right. what does alcohol do to it? She only had a um, minor amount of alcohol right. in her blood. I didn't, I didn't see anything about hmm. that. Um, I know it's a blood thinner. It is a blood That's thinner. That's why they tell you uh, don't go get tattoos when you're drunk. Because <laughs> it makes you bleed more. That's true. And the tattooers don't want you to bleed as little as possible well, while they're yeah. tattooing you. So They're a good yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. I also kind of looked up, I had mentioned this in a podcast previously, that blood spatter has kind of come into question. I was so hoping you were going to bring that up. So I found this really interesting article and I will, I'll read the like the title and the like summary kind of statement that was here. This is an article from ProPublica uh, from his basement in upstate New York. Herbert McDonald launched modern bloodstain pattern analysis, persuading judge after judge of its reliability. Then he trained hundreds of others but what if they're getting it wrong? How a dubious forensic science spread like a virus. Ooh. I was like, ooh. McDonald that came up with this, he, he was a scientist and well-trained. And he based it off of physics and chemistry and biology and mathematics and he used, you know, widely recognized tools, and his techniques are neither untested nor unreliable, according to Judge James F. Warren. So he did a pretty good job of having a good foundation of this science that okay. he's he created. Like he created it. The spatter that it's called spatter and not splatter is his deal. Okay. Yeah. Recognize that? Yeah, but you know, it's it's not blood splatter. It's 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 spatter, spatter, and yes, and he was very, very interested in correcting people who would mispronounce it. And I don't think I've mispronounced it, but I don't think I ever quite realized I was saying something different. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well, there you go. How's that for you know osmosis learning? I mean, (laughs) wow. Okay. All right. Well, that's interesting. Okay. So, so this may not be as solid as we thought. It's, it's pretty definitely not. Okay. Um, the reliability has never been proven or qualified, but McDonald was really good at getting judges to accept it. And because judges accepted it, they kept accepting it. Does that make sense? Like once Mm -hmm. one accepted it, they said, well, they put it in 
over here, down in Texas is where a lot of it started. It's the uh, problem of precedent. Yeah. And that is something that occurs in our culture all around. For instance, um, you know, to really just drive out the controversial, we talk about the law of the land with certain laws. They're not laws. They're precedents. Right. And so when people talk about changing those, quote, law of the lands, and we need to introduce new law because that law is bad. It's not a law. It's not not how this works. (laughs) And so I, I find myself having to be quiet because I'm not able to have a rational conversation. Because I, <laughs> I get all kinds of weird. But precedent. Well, and then people want to know, you know, are you an attorney? And you're like, no, but I watch a lot of crime shows. Well, and I passed civics in school. <laughs> like, yeah. you know what I mean? But mm-hmm. a, a precedent this is why we have that other cliche. It's called legislating from the bench. Yeah. Well, this is. Basically, reliability from the bench. Right. Yes. That's exactly it. And he's not without some credential. He applied for and successfully received a grant from the Department of Justice. And in 1971, they published his findings, flight characteristics and stain patterns of human blood, which basically made this guy the preeminent expert on blood. And and I have to point out that yeah, there is a article. really funny, funny, funny little drawing here, and it's not not Christie's, um, but like in a picture of this guy's notebook, there's a drawing of a dead man, and it's really hysterical. Well, We're gonna have to got, post that. Yeah. Oh, I'll post the whole article. Right. I found like thirty two sources for this pa- this podcast. That's and legit. <laughs> I didn't. I'm not using them all for what we're talking about, but. I'll probably post all of them <laughs> at some point over the next couple of weeks. You know, keep an eye out for that. And yes, it's kind of an endearing little um, it, I illustration. Bless his heart. Yeah. <laughs> you know? In order to kind of monetize this, McDonald worked as a forensic expert who would testify in cases. He would go and examine blood spatter and make suggestions about what happened and different things. And In addition to that, he would also crisscross the country teaching a 40-hour course to primarily law enforcement officers called Bloodstain Evidence Institutes. He would emphasize his own scientific education and then basically authorize people in 40 hours like a certificate yeah they would get like a training certificate that they were now blood spatter not really experts but kind of experts right you know that they could go and make assumptions and you know this is without all the his scientific training which physics and gravity and you know physiology and all these things that he was trained in these people didn't have, there was no minimum educational requirements to go to this course. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, you had GED. If you could become a police officer, which, you know, it's a very challenging thing to do. So it's not, they're not people without intelligence by any means, but they're not people who are trained to be scientific experts either. They're, you know, now bec- these people have certificates, they're certified, they're allowed to go and 
testifying court. And See, that's the part that bothers me because I think it's not so bad that a uh, an officer might go and, and further his ability to walk on scene and understand what's happened, mm-hmm. um, especially a detective. Right. That's a helpful tool. Um, even even lawyers and prosecutors from that side, but even like, a, I don't know, a crime scene uh, investigators, crime scene evidence, right. um, everybody involved with that can benefit from that. Um, just because the more you know about what you do, even if it's not where your hands are on, right. can be helpful. Um, but I do not believe a certification like that qualifies you as an expert in the court. I know. No. I mean, I think it can be, it can be something that can help inform, but I don't think it can be necessarily the end-all be-all particularly in a courtroom and Mm-mm. hopefully not in an investigation. In 94, he was hired by O.J. Simpson's defense team. And um, what he actually did was he was trying to show that the prosecution for O.J. Simpson tried to say that the glove didn't fit O.J. Simpson because <laughs> the blood got on it and it dried. And that's the only reason why it didn't fit. And they hired McDonald to come in to basically disprove that, which he did. Oh, so boy, those scenes know. are vividly emblazoned in my oh, mind. Oh my gosh. Oh, if it if the glove doesn't fit, you, you must, must acquit. acquit. <laughs> oh, good times. Um, Actually, by the way, that that was it a movie or a series? No, oh, I can't the remember. People versus O.J. Simpson. Thank you. It was a series. It was good. Oh, it was so good. It was, it was good. Fascinating. You know who was the surprise in that? David Schwimmer. Thank you. I was thinking in my head, like Ross really broke out of Ross. Yeah. Ooh, and you know, <laughs> there's that. Um, there's that show, uh, Homecoming. Oh, it's a new show. I think on Amazon Prime Video. It's a original. Okay. And it was based on a podcast, and I haven't watched any of it yet, but I listened to the entire podcast, and it was an audio drama, and David Schwimmer was one of the main characters, and he was really good at it. Well, how about that? Really, really good. Oh. So. Yeah, that was very good. Yeah. So, the blood spatter thing, you know, it's interesting because um, I would love to know more about his analysis, although I know that would take a long time, but, you know, statistics work this way. You know, the more cases you add to it, the better information you have. Um, But there can also be a lot of variance, not just from uh, understanding and not variance in the scientific form. I'm talking about just general, uh, from what you can say about, in general, versus what you can say about a particular case, very different. And it sounds to me that maybe for a while they used very general information to try to infer a case. And then as they continued on, they maybe zeroed in on that statistical error and started looking at, okay, what's the confidence interval and what can I actually predict um, based off a case that that might have changed things? Yes. We got to a point, like in the early 2000s, where... Everybody was bringing in their own forensic blood spatter experts, and they had conflicting opinions, which we see this in the documentary. We do. And I think that's when it's really shortly after this trial, the initial trial, is when those things kind of started to unravel. Um, A gentleman named uh, Daniel Attinger, fluid dynamic specialist, went to one of McDonald's last bloodstain evidence institutes (laughs) 
before he retired. And so he's familiar with what was being taught. And he basically said that a lot of what's being taught is untested and not that all of the conclusions are rife with inaccuracy Mm. that there's, they don't, the analysts, because they haven't been trained in science, they weren't even accounting for gravity in many cases because they weren't taught to in this bloodstain evidence Institute. They weren't taught to account even for gravity which is a big issue. So, <laughs> yeah, I know. And how did they even do that? So the people who were doing these analyses that were assuming things about speed of the blood and all those different things. And, of course, none of that took into account not only gravity, you know, kind of basic things and the viscosity of the, that you know, blood doesn't behave like water. Right. <laughs> and some of it's thicker than others in your yeah. in your own body. Yeah. Whether well, it's oxygenated or not. Right. And, you know, to say that, oh, it definitely happened this way doesn't take into account that people have different physiologies and anatomy. Like somebody has a weird shaped blood vessel. That could make a big difference oh, yeah. as to how their blood spatters. And none of that was being taken into account. And, Interesting. Um, this guy, he Attinger was a professor at Iowa state university. And I'm going to preface that with, there was a, some student complaints that he was verbally abusive. So he was no longer a teacher, but they had to keep him on working. So he was doing research just so that's out there. He does, he's not some saint of a guy doesn't necessarily have anything to do with his work, but he'd like to develop a computerized handheld device that could read bloodstains at crime scenes and help the investigators to understand it better even if they don't have a good understanding of the complex science that's behind it all. So I was like, oh, now that's that's a good solution. Now that seems like a solution. If they do have some, some understanding of what generally occurs when, and they Mm -hmm. can say, Hey, if it looks like this, I can with a night, you know, with some sort of confidence, um, I can say that within this range of possibilities, this is what's happened. Right. You know, they either either fell forward or fell straight down or within a realm because you can never say, Oh, this is what happened. But what you can say is like, there's this range of possibilities here. Right. And so, and I can say, you know, yeah, this doesn't fall within there. It's kind of like, um, the, uh, computers that do weather forecasting. There's different models. Right. And they say different things. So it would be kind of like that. That's the key word is model. Basically you have a model and then when you pluck your data into the model, then you can kind of say there's a 90% 95 or however confident you want to be chance that um, that if I say this is this, that it's going to fall within yeah. what the model says. Yeah. Right? So, and then you can reverse engineer that kind of for, yeah. um, you know, lack of a better explanation. But um, but that would be super helpful. That right. would be super helpful. Now, I don't know that would be evidence, but it would help a, a detective to be directed into the right spot. Right. And using technology like that and right. photos. You know photo math? I'm yes. Gonna, oh my gosh. Let's digress for just a moment oh. to celebrate that this type of technology has saved moms and dads across the nation. Glory. Hallelujah. There's an app for both iOS and 
Android devices that is free and is called PhotoMath. And if you have a child that is in algebra and you need to check their homework, it will save you. And it like you write the equation down, mm -hmm. you point your phone at it with a little camera, and it will give you the answer. And it will not only give you the answer, it will give you step-by-step instructions on how to get to that answer yep it's amazing so you can help your kid find their error it's fantastic i'm telling you photo math we're not being paid we don't have any sponsors nope but but if, if photo math wants to sponsor us we're happy to, <laughs> by all to means. talk about them all the time and i will tell you college graduate statistics intermediate oh. statistics I used my photo math one time. Did you really? Now, Good I, for you. I, only, only once, really, and part of the equation, they were able to help me, and I went, oh, that's what I'm missing. But mm -hmm. then there was another with a constant that it doesn't do. So it doesn't uh -huh. do E. Y'all, in oh. statistics, it doesn't mm -hmm. do E. It does all these other, not E, oh, just FYI. No. But it was able to tell me where to go. Oh, okay. Oh, well, that's good. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it we digress. Yeah. So then they brought up this whole thing, which I thought seemed very, very 2003, that they went on and on about his bisexuality. It just seemed very uh, damning in a way that I don't know that even here, just 16 short years later, that it would be quite as damning now. I wondered if that might be a cultural like location sort of thing. You know, I, what I think about it is that they were opening the door for the fact that there might be disingenuous right. aspects of his life. Yes. Because... Now, that I absolutely agree with. And I'm not convinced that she was on board or okay with the fact that he was uh, having sexual liaisons with men outside of their marriage. I'm not convinced of that. I mean, certainly that happens. And whatever is, works for people in their marriage, I, whatever, man. You know, no judgment here. If that's, if that's what you need to do to stay married to one another, cool. But, I, you know, I mean, it wouldn't be cool for me. But for somebody else, if they want to make that decision, that's fine. Right. In this situation... Well, and I wonder if they would have... I think they would have certainly handled it differently more recently maybe um, but because uh, if she was if she wasn't okay with it though right but they just they made such a big deal out of it and it wasn't it was a big deal because he was this like dirty gay man who was yeah. married yeah. it wasn't it wasn't a he's going behind his wife's back you're it right was, you know that's was, so true it was really a he's dirty and awful and how can we believe anything he says which he, you know, nobody yeah. knows what it's like to be in a marriage except the people in the marriage. You know, but, I really didn't pick up on that. But now that you say that, I'm trying to, I'm going back. Uh -huh. You're right. Prosecutor Frida Black really made a big deal out of it in like in closing arguments and stuff to really talk about just how awful he was and how they couldn't possibly be in a happy marriage, which to me seems like. That by itself, not, okay, I think the sneaking around, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, that's an issue. That's a, a problem. Right. But the homosexual stuff in and of itself, I, she made it, she made that the dirty thing. You know, it's interesting because I think my bias just came in there. Okay. My bias being that I don't have one okay. against 
anyone and right. their choices in that matter right. or who they are in that matter. And so I think this coming from me and I don't know, maybe our day and age or our culture uh-huh. or, or whatnot, I really just read into the disingenuous nature of how he dealt with her as his wife. Right. Yes. And and that I absolutely agree with, but she just really man ran that hard and made him like a dirty, awful person because he was bisexual and yeah. not not that he was being deceitful. I gotta go back and rewatch it oh. again. I do because I really <laughs> I kinda wanna go in and really hear that again because I think I just yeah. I think I just missed that. Yeah. But Ooh. I think you're right. Yeah. Then the, there was Elizabeth Ratliff, the family friend <laughs> who in they live next door to in Germany, who also fell down a flight of stairs and died. That was so damning. <laughs> I and I felt like, well, who is just so unlucky to have that happen to him twice, you know? I just yeah. can't have a hard time with that one. Oh. I, 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 you know, and it, there's just, there's so much conflicting stuff about it. The death was ruled accidental by a German examiner. He tested her spinal fluid evidently at the scene, which seems weird to me that... They would do like a spinal tap at the scene. It seems like that would be something you would do after you got them back to the medical examiner's office. But maybe I couldn't find any information about what normal procedures are or were in the early 80s in Germany. (laughs) And I looked. The only thing I I could think was that if she landed in a particular position, then testing the spinal fluid there before moving the spine would, would be different. Right. So... I I thought of that, and I thought, okay, well, that's good. But then they tried to say that Elizabeth Ratliff died late in the evening because that because Michael Peterson killed her is basically what they were trying to say that they <laughs> ha- were having an affair or something, and he pushed her down the stairs and killed her. But it my research led me to believe that it would be extremely difficult for them to have done a spinal tap after rigor had set in. So they didn't find her until the morning. Really? So she would have been, rigor would have set in by then. Because it sets in after, I think, eight hours. I have to look that up again. It was like eight hours. And then it like doesn't start to let up until 24 to 36 hours after death. And that it would have been challenging for them to do a spinal tap had she not been more recently deceased than so because they they argued that she fell down the stairs probably in the morning and that she had had a brain hemorrhage and they that's why they found cloudy fluid I don't know. It was I'm, all very... I'm processing all of this because I really hadn't gone down that rabbit hole. But I if, know, man. if I look, if I look at this, it does say that um, the muscle fibers definitely mm-hmm. react. Yeah. But when you do a spinal tap, your spine's pretty close to the skin. I'm not sure that you wouldn't be able to get a needle in there. Mm. I don't know. Hmm. But it can it can um, start between two and six hours following death. Right. Um, but it and also can it, be one to four days. So it could oh, let up. Oh. Well, it doesn't let up until after 24 hours. 
right one day minimum one to four so So she would for it to let up she would have had to have been there for more than a day which she wasn't because there were children in the house okay that's right. right so she had to have been in rigor if if she had truly died the night before if she had not died until the morning so that was my only That's thing interesting so i'm really i felt like they made a bigger deal out of it than it really was especially when they did the whole da the da insisted that ratliff's body be examined by deborah radish who had examined kathleen peterson and i thought okay i get it he looks guilty, but you're almost trying too hard. I don't know. I think that was the right call. Uh, I think if you've got multiple cases, because it changes how you how you not only prosecute. Yeah. But um, and but there's no statute of limitations on murder. Now this no. didn't happen, so there's there's complications there with the with right the areas and the countries and all of this sort of stuff. But I would have much rather seen a Texas medical examiner do a examination that was unbiased because it was obvious Deborah Radish on the stand was certain that he was guilty. Right. Well, I would have liked to see something done with both because okay. enough, po- That's enough fair. time had passed that, that we have new, we have new things we can test for and, right. um, and maybe their procedures weren't good. Right. Um, you know, maybe he shouldn't have done what he did or, you know, maybe they do have the time of death wrong, you know, like things of that sort. Right. Um, so I, I would have liked to see both been, been done. Mm-hmm. Why couldn't we bring Deborah Radish to Texas? <laughs> Why did poor Elizabeth Ratliff's remains have to go all the way to North Carolina? It seems like a big expense, but yeah, at for it's it that was well that was know, one of those. It gave me a little pause. I feel like you're just trying. I mean, when you're doing something like this, you've got to look at every every avenue. Sure, because if you just close something off, you you run the risk mm-hmm. of of not knowing a path you need to go down. Right. But if you can close off a path, then at least you know something. Right. You know? Right. Exactly. It's like uh, doing the experiments and you get a non... Yeah, you get a a negative result. Yeah, yeah. A uh, A non-significant. Thank you. That's what I was going for. A (laughs) non-significant result is is important. Those are important to have. It's very, very true. And so I think it's interesting to like maybe pull up and see how many fatal cases of falling downstairs happen. Uh huh. So in Germany, two percent of cases where somebody fell down the stairs resulted in a death. That seems like a lot, honestly. Over eleven years, even that, like two out of every hundred people who fall down the stairs die. One hundred and sixty-six cases. Wow. Yeah, two okay. percent of what they saw. Okay. So I should clarify that okay. it's one hundred and sixty-six cases and two okay. percent. Yeah, huh. fall falls downstairs made up two percent, one hundred and sixty-six cases mm-hmm. of all postmortem postmortem examinations carried out within this period. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't even think to look that up. It's like how many people die from falling because downstairs. I felt like it's kind of a. Mm, <laughs> What are what are the chances there? Well, probably not good. But then you have people who get hit by lightning, you know, four times and win the lottery three times. <laughs> well, and some people are... do carry the burden for others. That's true. <laughs> well, and the BBC they had put out in June of two thousand mm-hmm. uh, that more than one thousand people die every year after falling downstairs. Okay, and that's within the whole country. Of course, this is in the UK, right? Um, which is a much smaller not country a... than US, right? Yeah. Um, I just. 
it's not a majority. It's not even half. I mean, 2% no. is still a lot of people. Yeah. But, but it's not. It's not a ton. It's not a ton of people. Like, what are the like, chances that you're going to die? Statistically. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I think about this, that's why I think when 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 they brought up his past, I think that's why I was so interested in that rabbit trail because I think it was important since it's not so common. It's not even a huge possibility right. that you're going to die from falling downstairs and he's got two chicas that mm. fell downstairs and died. I don't think so. That just seems weird. I, I mean, that in and of itself to me is not the, the biggest red flag. No? What no. is? I'm curious. Oh, I just think the... Well, <laughs> in episode seven, they talked about needing a story for the jury. And I thought, I understand where they're coming from, that they're trying to create a narrative where, in which reasonable doubt. But given that he's an author, talking about it that way was uber creepy to me. <laughs> yeah, it does seem weird. We need a story for the jury. Yeah, that's not oh, a great way to uh-uh. put that. No, that a story indicates fiction. And I think as an author, he should have spoken more clearly. He should have used a different vernacular if what he wanted to convey was that he was trying to tell them the actual factual events that would prove at least, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt that he was a murderer. Don't call it a story. A story is fiction. And I think, I hear you. I hear you on that. But I do think he didn't have any other vernacular to use. Uh, baloney. I He's think, an author. But that's why I think that's, that word comes up to him. I don't think he would no, have thought no, how no. it sounds to somebody You're, who is not... Mm-mm, I don't think so. I think I no. I disagree. You I think, think he? A, I think a person who writes stories, who writes fiction for a living, should have a clear language, especially when they know they're being filmed and they're talking about being convicted in a murder case. Yeah, it's not good. No, I just I, I guess I think the professional vernacular a person uses it just gets stuck in in their it does. habit of speaking, and so I it's not that he he would use the word because he is a writer. It's because he's a writer. He has certain vernacular in his in his normal talk, and and I would agree with you if he were a butcher or if he were a financial advisor. Mm-hmm. I would agree with you there. But not author. But not an author. I mean, I'm going to hold him to a higher standard of language. Ooh, you, really? I am. Really? I am. That's interesting. Because I, you know, we're, we're artists in our family. Yeah. And so the word story is used all the time. And not for fiction. Right. We, well, everyone has a story to tell. Right. There is always a story, something going on there. And so that word to me does not indicate fiction at mm-hmm. all. And so, but... Often, my husband, he, who does, you know, video products and such, he has fictional stories he tells in order to tell something else. Like a training video, he comes up with a fictional story. Right. And yet, and that's a story. So I'm not married to it being a fiction or yeah. nonfiction. Nothing. But I think if you're in the arts of uh-huh. any kind, or if you're, especially if you are an author, I think the word story would be hard to get away from. Mm. Because if you're going to tell a story... That's fair. You're just going to tell I'm a story. I'm still going to hold him to a higher standard because <laughs> I think... So authors st- ought to have a higher cognizance of... 
of, of space and what's going on, like of awareness. Life. Yes. Okay. They they should have a understanding of how their language is going to be perceived because what they do is use language to give you a perception of what they're telling you. So does this apply to good authors and bad authors? Yeah. Yeah? Well, I mean... Because if it doesn't apply to bad authors, then I think he's off the hook. (laughs) Fair. Fair. Okay. Um, The jury visited the home with, like... Which I thought was super weird, okay? Because the jury visited the home, first of all. It's the home he's been living in. It's more than a year after the death took place. It's so weird. It's so weird. They should have just had Abby Shuto come in and build a replica. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. So I wondered how... um, normal that is oh and it's really rare and the most high profile murder case that has allowed jurors to go into the home was oj simpson in 1995 so but that it's really they don't like to do it because the home could be in a different state which makes sense especially when it's a family home the wherever the scene is makes sense that it would be different if it's a family home or if it's a business. They have to like clean up and live there. And the longer after the crime has taken place, there's a much greater chance that something's been changed. I get that they weren't really going to maybe look at the blood spatter. It was all still there. So I'm sure that they were looking at that. I think what they were trying to show them was how tight a space it was how narrow and steep the stairs were, things like that. But it just ooh, it really rubbed me the wrong way. It was, and that's creepy. Yeah, it was creepy. That's creepy. Yeah. And I get it. I mean, on the documentary, when they showed those stairs, that's mm-hmm. tiny. It's awkward. I mean, yeah. I might kill myself very easily on those stairs. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, I'd yeah. be a part of the 2%. Yeah. <laughs> and I fell downstairs a decent amount. <laughs> I did. I actually, when when my son was an infant and my husband was away at training, we fell down the stairs together twice. (gasps) Oh, no. Now, thankfully, I'm, uh, for being a super clumsy person, I'm also very graceful. I don't, that would be my definition of Uh me. Just a paradox. Graceful Um, but clumsy. Yes. Um, And so when I slipped, I, I was able to hit my butt and we hugged and we just kind of like I don't know like Jamaican bobsledded oh right down you know no wonder your back's messed up yeah it wasn't fun (laughs) it wasn't fun yeah oh I broke my tailbone falling downstairs when I was a young teenager ow I like rolled down the stairs and oh no, and you know, there's fair. nothing they can do for it. So my entire eighth grade year, I got up from the, you know, one piece desks like I was pregnant. Oh my oh, gosh, right? Awful, awful, so, awful, awful. Then we have old Dwayne Deaver, who is the blood spatter analysis expert, sort of. Certificate. Okay. Well, there's yeah. got to be a word for that. I, yeah. I mean, certificate. Certificate. I yeah, like that. I don't, I, yeah, I don't know exactly. So when they went back and talked about what happened with 
Dwayne Deaver. He provided all this blood spatter analysis, which you see a whole lot of it. Several members of the jury basically said that that was the testimony that really pushed them over the edge. And then it was found that he was inaccurate and not forthcoming. A different expert that they brought into the hearing to try in 2011 to decide whether he was going to be able to have another trial said that what Deaver did was reenactments and not experiments. And he had put him himself forward as a experimenter that he was somebody who was conducting scientific experiments to determine what happened. And really what he was doing was trying to figure out how it could have happened. And he gave a lot of, false and misleading testimony in a whole bunch of cases. And he ended up getting fired from the SBI, uh, I don't know, Bureau of Investigation, whatever. It's like the North Carolina. Oh, yeah. So it would be the NCBI. Yeah. But it was the SBI is what they called it in the documentary. I don't remember what it stood for. Anyway, he ended up being dismissed from there. And a lot of the cases that he testified on were... His evidence was found inadmissible, and that was a big point behind that. Well, and that speaks to everything we were talking about, the the difference between being able to have a model that says generally versus what happens in a specific case. Right. It's one thing to say, okay, generally, I can say this happens, but I can't actually then apply that to a specific case without knowing a lot more about the model that I'm using. Right. And then being able to tell you what are the range of possibilities. Mm -hmm. You fall down a staircase... A lot of crazy things can happen. Well, it really seems like it. You know, and one of the things that the documentary kept harping on when they started this whole blood spatter thing was how she couldn't have gotten blood over here. Well, yeah, she could have. Well, she was. She didn't die from the fall down the stairs. There was blood on the bottom of her feet. She tried to get up. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, but the, when they started on the wall, they yeah. were like, there's no way unless she was hit. And I was like, I, I, apparently you haven't seen somebody fall down stairs because that yeah. is a chaotic strange event yeah you know yeah. not everybody can jamaican bobsled down the stairs <laughs> like i can but well, i have had other situations where right. my like, arms are flying and you go topsy-turvy and you know it just it can be a crazy event and yeah. see that influences your ability to to uh you know right. comment on a case yeah he basically gets told that he can have an, a new case or a new trial He'd spent eight years in prison at this point. He was he lived under house arrest for several years. They brought up the Alfred plea about four months after he was released to house arrest. Right. He went to live with a friend, I guess, in their like apartment or condo or whatever. Alfred. And they brought up the Alfred plea. The Al the Alfred Alfred. 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 I want to say Alfred. But I it's do not. too. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not the butler. It's from not Batman. the butler. <laughs> it's the Alford plea. Um, they brought it up, and initially, Michael Peterson was kind of against that because he didn't want to admit guilt in any way. Then they bring in a new DA, and he seems like he would be open to a plea, but he's unwilling to upset Kathleen's sisters. Candace and Lori and her daughter, Caitlin, who initially, the first several months right after her mother's death, supported Michael and then 
came to not. And I thought that was interesting. The yeah. vocalness. Right. Of how they supported. They didn't just not say bad things. They said well, good things about him. Right. Like they were in his court. Right. You know? Oh, the kids were super supportive. Very it's interesting. Everybody except for Kathleen's daughter. Right. Yeah. Margaret and Martha were Elizabeth Ratliff's daughters mm-hmm. who, when they were orphaned, were taken in by Michael Peterson and his then wife, Patty, and who I, was su- also supported him the whole time through this. And I don't know how they didn't. I don't know. There was one that was a little less... Uh, yeah, a little less... Uh, like, mm. You just didn't... I didn't believe her as right. much as I did believe the other one. And now I can't remember who's who. Yeah, that's right. Oh, you know how that works. And yeah. you're like, ah, oh, because you're yeah. like, what entity? Right. You know, this is why I don't call my children by their individual names. I just yell, <laughs> boys! Um, but yeah, I, I felt the the uh, hesitation yeah. right from the first interview yeah. with Radcliffe's yeah. daughters. Yeah. So it wasn't until 2014 that they finally start talking about a new trial and they're trying to purport that all this DNA evidence couldn't be done now and which, yeah, but I I don't know. You know I don't know how much DNA evidence this really was really going to like do for him. Uh, no. Yeah. I mean, his DNA was all over the house. Right. It would have been all over her. Anyways, DNA evidence wasn't really a player, in my opinion. Right. That got me wondering, what are the laws about preservation of evidence? Mm, How long does that Uh stuff sit on the shelf? Of course, there's no set law. There's no federal law. It varies from state to state. About half of states in the U.S. compel automatic preservation of evidence upon conviction uh, for only certain types of crimes, which makes sense. And then they're limited in their time frames and what they have to preserve. Some only state that analysis has to be done before they dispose of the evidence. It's all, it's none of it's very clear. I wish I had a good answer for that, but I don't. And the evidence isn't clear, huh? Yeah, the evidence isn't clear about how long evidence has to be kept. (laughs) I thought it was interesting that Rudolph stated the attorney who worked with him primarily throughout the entire uh, documentary and through the case, and he ended up having a a different attorney for the final trial mm-hmm. period because he was indigent anyway rudolph the attorney said that the da would rather lose a trial than deal with the sister candace and her anger and i thought i want to be like candace i want to be that tenacious for the people that i love right or wrong whatever whether he did it or not I want to be like Candace fighting for justice right. for mm-hmm. the people that I love. Well, we talked a little bit about that today before we turned yeah. on the podcast recording. Mm-hmm. Um, just the whole idea of fighting for justice. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to do that. It is hard to because do Because you put yourself at risk. Mm-hmm. I mean, you Candace had to devote energy, time. Um, she had to sacrifice mm-hmm. to be able to fight like that. And, yeah. and I hope that I would be willing to do that for something as serious as that. But I think you have to start small. You don't just live your life like, whatever, okay, Uh and And then then, all of a sudden be like, Candace. Right. No, exactly. I mean, I got the impression that Candace was pretty tenacious. 
Yeah. <laughs> so Rudolph actually does allude to the owl defense <laughs> at one point, oh, at near, right near the end. Can I say 100% that it wasn't some raptor who flew down and inflicted those scalp wounds without causing a skull fracture or any brain injury? I can't say one way or the other. And I'm like, oh, oh we'll get to the owl defense in a minute. So, owls. Owls. Vicious owls. <laughs> um, and no one's really satisfied at the end of this. Michael didn't really want to plead Alfred. He didn't want to admit guilt in any way, but he didn't want to keep fighting, which I can totally empathize with. Candace is angry at the perceived injustice, and she says that an innocent man does not plead guilty. I I don't necessarily agree with that because people who are innocent plead guilty all the time because they don't have the resources to fight. That's right. But... You know, whatever. And the new DA, looking back at the evidence, I don't know that he would have even put a case together against Michael Peterson. He said that he would have had reasonable doubt going back and looking at stuff. Well, so. See, and that's interesting because, I mean, time has passed, and so you hope that it's hindsight 2020, but so much has been done about this. Like, a book has been written. You know, uh, people have had a lot of hands in what's right. going on here because of the notoriety of the right. situation and all of that that uh, I don't know that you can check your bias on that right um, but I get it falling downstairs is it is possible right it is possible and you know the whole gash on the head I mean like I said falling downstairs is a super chaotic event especially when there's a turn at the end yeah uh, you can well and especially somebody she had muscle relaxers and you know alcohol and I think something else in her system at the you know who's to say but, who's to say you know so it started off this whole series started off with a chilling statement from Michael Peterson saying that she, that was the last time he saw her alive. No, wait, she was alive when I found her, which was I, one of the most chilling things that he says is at the very end, Michael Peterson is talking to one of his daughters about how nice it was going to be that they didn't have to talk about legal stuff all the time. The daughter says this. Mm -hmm. It's going to be so nice to not just have to talk about all your legal stuff all the time. Because that's been their life with this man that they've known as their father for you know nearly two decades. Right. And he says, I don't want to be forgotten. And I was like, ooh. He's, there's a whole lot more going on here. Which... What did they leave out? So let's let's talk about some of the things they left out. Yes, because... And why that would come as such a shock to me. Shock to you? It, what, like that I don't want to be forgotten, that it was so chilling, that it maybe didn't necessarily... That that was... It was kind of a surprising thing. Like, I get that he liked being the center of attention, but... Like, wouldn't he like to be the center of attention because he was grandfather? No, he still wanted to be center of attention. So let's talk about yeah. why that might have been a little bit surprising to me. Yeah, because I'm interested to know. I, I was not shocked by these things. In fact, when this whole thing started, remember how we talked about this mm-hmm. chilling? And I, I advocated for him yeah. when we talked about that statement before. Yeah. But my overall impression of him was that he really enjoyed this. And even though I advocated for him about the story thing, I'm about to blow your mind because I think he was guilty of sin. Oh, yeah. I do. And I 
I think that also that he orchestrated a lot of this to make sure there was a book written, make mm-hmm. sure there was documentaries. Mm-hmm. I think he saw in his future a well, way to be the main character in his own live book. The documentaries people were like on it. They were right there from the very beginning. Yep. And the filmmaker and director was a French man, uh, Jean Xavier de Lestrade, who made all this. I don't know that that was necessarily his intention. He was a documentary filmmaker. I, I don't know that he was, he had anything to do with the orchestrating it at all. Um, I'm not convinced that Michael Peterson orchestrated all this and did it intentionally. I think that he's, I, I could see them having an argument and him trying to cover it up. It seems more like a crime of passion to me than a planned out, thought out, premeditated murder. Yeah. I, there's a whole lot more that he hasn't told anybody. And I hope he's writing a memoir that he's going to be published upon his death. Um, Maybe so. <laughs> because, anyway, so, you know, why might it be surprising that Michael Peterson was, you know, a little creepier than we thought? Well, turns out that he had like a 15-year relationship with the editor, Sophie Burnett. That yes. they fell in love or she at least fell in love with him. It's difficult to say how two-way the relationship was. She fell in love with him during the initial filming in like 2002 and 2003. Right, right after. I mean, yeah. because, and so the the article that I have here says that she fell in love with Michael Peterson not long after he was accused of murdering his wife. Yeah. And they apparently had an affair which lasted for more than a decade, according to the film's director. Yeah, that, until um, it was like May of 2017 mm-hmm. when they... Uh, finally we're no longer in some kind of relationship with one another but uh they claim that she that her affection for peterson didn't have any effect on her editing and i call baloney on that absolutely because uh i really i'm sure that she had every intention of trying to make him look more innocent than he was it's it not to say that she didn't have enough experience to be able to do something. And certainly she put chilling moments in there. Right. It's not like it was so notably biased. But I think that there was a bias that she wouldn't have recognized. It's that the, type of bias that you can't control for. Yes. Yes. That she didn't see those things as chilling and didn't leave them out. There you go. That's, I think, the bias. That's the bias. That we have. I think it's called... Um, uh, the technical term is uh, rose-colored glasses. Oh, there we go. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Fair. Um, then there was... Okay, they kind of made it seem like they didn't really have any understanding or close relationship of what prison would was like and what it was like to have a family member in prison. And that's not true either because Clayton Peterson was arrested and incarcerated. Now, obviously, he didn't have anything to do with Kathleen Peterson's death that we can tell in any way. And I, in no way, am trying to say that he had anything to do with it. But he did plant a bomb at Duke University's main administration building, and it didn't go off, but he was caught and had placed it and spent like four years in prison 
Yeah, that they alluded to it briefly in episode briefly. seven, uh, and it didn't. I can see why they left it out, but it also kind of they made it seem like they were this like upstanding, wholesome family where you know so blended, and her kids and his kids and these adopted orphan children and. Mm. You really put them on a pedestal, trying to make them seem perfect. Yeah. And in fact, there's a book written in 2004 called A Perfect Husband. Mm. Um, And and it's it's a true crime book on this case. Um, Several things were noted in there um, about, for instance, the blood spatter. We were talking about how that was a, a tool they used to try to determine how long she had been there besides, you know, time of death. Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I know we talked about that, but that kind of drives me crazy because time of death should be pretty easy to determine by the physiology of the person, not just right. spatter. However, one thing is that they had found red neurons in her brain. Yeah. And that, that had to have been at least dead for two hours. Yeah. For that to have developed. So that, yeah. So she was there quite a long time. What he, what he indicated to 911 is less than completely honest. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's why I said I, I advocate for him to, on certain areas. Right. For instance, his ability to know what time it was. If right. you're outside chilling, and let's drinking. face it, he was drinking, and it's not like he had a smartphone in his face. I mean, there is right. nobody on this earth that doesn't know what time it is now. Right. Uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But back, you know, in those, it wasn't that long ago, y'all, that we did not have well, yeah, this no. stuff, you know? And, I mean, um, the iPhone's only... Just over 10 years old. Oh, just over. So, um, yeah. So one thing, though, is that they did not talk about this idea that he staged the crime scene. No. Um, a bottle no. of wine and two glasses. Yes. Um, neatly on the counter. Um, but Kathleen's fingerprints weren't on them. Right. And yeah. so the prosecution had claimed that they were an attempt for Michael to stage the crime scene to make it look like Kathleen had too much, but she actually didn't have that much blood alcohol right. in her blood. It was low enough to path a, pass a breathalyzer. Well, and he should have known that. They're going to run a toxicology screen on her if you say she is drinking. So the only thought I have is, you know, Dummy. to advocate for him again, uh-huh. because I'm trying to think objectively, is that maybe he had gone in and got it out Right. And went to turn to go up the stairs to get her or to say, hey, bond of the night, continue, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and maybe yeah. found her at that moment. Right. And and it and everything went south. But, again, this is why this case is so irritating. Because mm-hmm. I could so, you know what, you put me on debate team and give me a side. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you can, you can argue both ways. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I'd be very good on a jury like this. Oh, because <laughs> I'd be back and forth and back and forth. And so here's something else they left out of the documentary. In addition to the red neurons and the relationship with the editor, uh, Kathleen had a life insurance policy for one point four million dollars, and Michael was the beneficiary. Uh, and he was broke. He yes, they were both in quite a lot of debt. They had a lot of debt. So the defense said it was like somewhere in the neighborhood of $150,000 in credit card debt. And the prosecution said it was much, much more than that. Uh, The author was broke by $1.4 million in debt. Oh, isn't that interesting? She had (laughs) $1.4 million 
in life insurance, and he was $1.4 million in debt. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And Kathleen's death, this is a quote from District Attorney Jim Harden, Kathleen's death, accidental death, would have allowed them, him, to continue to live the affluent, privileged life to which he had been accustomed, even though he had no job. Yes. Because he was not a good author. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yes. Did I say that? Yeah. <laughs> I, I try not to, like, disparage someone's work in that right. way, but... They were worried that she was going to lose her job, too, that she'd kind of be- become redundant uh, at the job that she had, and they were worried she was going to lose that. And then Nortel Networks is where she worked, and... They paid out $384,000 in death benefits for deferred compensation and her pension plans and retirement benefits and, you know, accidental death, basically, stuff. And he used all that for his defense. Yes, he did. Yeah, Spent it because all. Because he didn't have anything else. And then <laughs> there's the bloody footprint that was only alluded to like once or twice they said something did they talk about it at all okay the the prosecution talked about it like once or twice in passing that was all you saw they say they say something about a footprint and you're like footprint whatever okay because i kind of glossed over that they glossed over that well yes because it didn't make sense because the way they edited it to make him look less guilty because that footprint was on the back of her leg yeah, which was facing the floor. Which was facing the floor. Yeah, That's, mm, apparently no explanation was offered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, let's talk about the owl defense. <laughs> okay. It sounds really ridiculous. And I read this article from Vulture. I, there were a number of articles on it, but I thought it was really funny to pick the article from Vulture. <laughs> to talk about on the podcast so um it was originated with their neighbor larry pollard who was an attorney and he didn't come up with this possibility until right at the end of the trial yeah, yeah, it was towards the end. It, it was. It was a, well, it was right at the end. And they never brought it up in the trial. No, this is all coming out after the fact. Right. Everybody started to learn about it. Yes. This. So it could have been an owl attack. And so they're... <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. So they actually... I've read a number of articles that talked about it. And they said it was near Christmas time when they were doing this. If she had gone into like a storage area where they had the Christmas decorations and disturbed an owl, it's not really super unusual for owls to behave like that. So and we're talking about owl nest maybe inside an attic area or something yes, of that sort. Yes. Like, so if she had gone in there, disturbed the owl, and that it would behave in a way that would uh, be aggressive... In order to defend itself and its outlets, possibly. Or if it was just even disturbed, like if it had roosted there for a time and she disturbed it, it might attack. This is not unusual. Evidently, the Audubon Society did a whole article. Are we talking about large owls or small yeah, owls? like large owls. Large owls. It would be a large owl. Not like a... No, not, not, not like a little cute one. Like the bit, we have big ones around here. I don't know if you've ever seen them. Every once in a while, you'll hear them. 
I see them every once in a while. Uh-huh. Right? But they're not giant, but they're they're pretty big. Okay, the they're ones big. I've seen are like two and a half, three feet tall without oh. their legs. Oh no, no, I no. saw one on a on a walk. Uh, I was walking the dog early, and I was on my way home, and there was one on the roof, and it was pretty significantly taller than the. Uh, satellite dish it was standing next to interesting no i've only seen not barn owls but like like maybe 18 inches to 48 inches yeah Yeah. like well 48 inches is pretty big that's four feet that's a large owl oh i guess maybe that is maybe it's not that big so maybe smaller then okay you're a little smaller yeah you're thinking like 18 to 24 inches maybe we're doing arm gestures which you can't see (laughs) you can't see well let's take a picture of our arm we'll take a picture and we'll post our our arm gestures and i can't really do i have a one arm gesture wait okay we'll post that um but yeah no maybe it's a little smaller than than 48 inches yeah but i hear them a lot because we have um quite a significant amount of trees Mm -hmm. in our in our yard and there's one that has just this beautiful timbre to his voice and he's all whoo yeah it's nice and then there's the other one and i don't know what happened to him at birth he must have been the runt (laughs) because he or she is like (laughs) and you're like oh bless your heart everybody else has so much lessons lessons. you're the perfect one to give him voice lessons he is the uh black swan over there yeah it would make sense because okay in her hand there was hair from her own head mm-hmm. that was pulled out by the root and there were microscopic owl feathers in that hair as well hmm. which the initially the defense and the prosecution both said oh, okay it's feathers whatever it's probably from her down comforter or whatever and you know she had hair in her hand because she was trying to defend herself or had reached up to touch her own wounds and, Mm -hmm. you know, got blood and whatever, but that doesn't... And they they did say that it was owl, for sure. uh, Or was it feather? uh, This one, this article said owl. Hmm. So I don't know how certain they are about that. But the way the wounds looked, it was a trident pattern of roughly equal depth. And that owl attacks of this nature are not uncommon. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So, it sounds ridiculous. That it sounds ridiculous is probably the most ridiculous thing about it. It's not... It's absolutely not out of the realm of possibility. It sounds bananas. Because I never knew. I never knew this was an issue. I never knew it. Yeah. Yeah, I never knew. I, birds in the house are one thing. I just, th- it doesn't happen that often. No, to get birds but in they the had house. the doors open. It was near Christmas. She might have been going to a different so I've just, part of the house. I always like to go into attics, huh? I guess. I don't know. I didn't read the Audubon article I don't know. very closely because well, I so, already had 32 sources that I needed to oh, already <laughs> Here, take this one too because Newsweek last year this uh-huh. time last year okay on January 12th of last year the Newsweek came out with an article saying in the past few weeks owls have attacked humans or pets in Atlanta on at least three separate occasions okay large birds have reportedly swooped down leaving their victims with varying degrees of wounds yeah and evidently it's very they can be very aggressive and their 
talons are extremely sharp. They're like knives. Yeah, that's true. So that would explain why she had the wounds that she had on her head and why there was no brain or no brain injury or skull fractures. Yeah, because we're thinking she got attacked. Right. Probably surprised. Yep. Then she tried to... Uh, yeah. And then... With Muscles relaxers, anti-anxiety medication, a little bit of alcohol. Mm-hmm. She's at the top of a set of stairs. She's trying to swoop her, the, yeah. her hands. That gets her off balance. Yeah. To get the bird away. And down she falls. So she's injured by the fall. She's injured by the owl. It's not quite as ridiculous as it sounds. Yeah, as as a Audubon story says, th- it sounds like a punchline. Yeah, it really does. And um, now, would this have been an acceptable defense in court? Uh, maybe, maybe not. They didn't do any testing, really. So we'll never know for sure if the owl defense could have held water or not. But man, it does sound like a punchline. It really does. It just doesn't seem It possible. seems like somebody grasping at straws it does feel that way yeah but we is it reasonable doubt that's the question well yes and you know that was i think the thing that michael peterson had the hardest time with was not he wanted more than reasonable doubt he wanted to be exonerated he did and unfortunately for him that's not how our system works no i mean we can say that we can say that word unless the case is dropped against you right um, if you come out with guilty or not guilty, that's why our court yeah. system doesn't use guilty and innocent. Is, right. Because <laughs> right. we can either prove that you are or we cannot prove that you are. Right. So, however, exonerations do happen in our court system. So when he got the retrial, that would have been a time where they could come back and say, um, we can show that there, somebody else did it. Right. In which case he would have been exonerated. Right. Um, but there wasn't that kind of case and hmm, well we'll we'll never know quite for sure yeah but and there's some interesting uh articles out there we'll have to, to post them this yeah. audubon article um very interesting about the the owl theory mm-hmm. and kind of pointing out that there's not really forensic evidence that we can compare to right um so we might have to just use some you know, common sense. Does this happen? You know, and right. all of that. And uh, the the last quote is: "The owl didn't kill Kathleen Peterson." Davis says the owl just knocked her in the head. She would have been fine if she'd gone up and crawled into bed and slept it off. Mm, mm, that's interesting. Mm. Okay, so who knows what the actual combination of things is? So Frida Black, who we mentioned before, was the. Uh, Durham County Assistant District Attorney who made such a big deal out of the bisexuality. Um, Tragically, July of last year, just a little over a month after this documentary was released to Netflix, originally the documentary aired in France, the first eight episodes, and then the eight or ten episodes. I think it was eight. Eight episodes. And then they added more from the follow-up 2011 2014 2017 that they added additional stuff in and then they released it on netflix so right after it went to netflix frida black was not responding to her family and so her family had the police go and do a well check on her and uh, she was uh, dead in her home at the age of 57, which is very sad. Uh, There was no suspiciousness 
around it. It was just interesting. And a little over a month before that, Ron Guret, who was the the private investigator that they well, was a friend kind of uh, in a way. Well, but he was a he had former police and was a private investigator who did a lot of research for them throughout the trial. Had died in June at the age of seventy three, so his was less shocking than hers. She was quite a bit younger, Mm -hmm. but man, tragedy. This Just guy. all the way around. But then what follows this guy oh. is an umbrella of rain and storms. Oh, man. And then the director of the documentary, De Lestrade, who we mentioned before, had talked about uh, what he wasn't allowed to film, that initially... What he wanted to do was have two separate teams, one that would follow the prosecution and one that would follow the defense. Mm -hmm. And they kind of started out doing that, but about four months in, the uh, prosecution said no longer that they uh, would be willing to have a documentary film crew in there at all, that they talked about uh, how... (laughs) They talked about how when you have a third party present with a an attorney and a client that 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 third party makes the attorney client privilege go away and so they tried to find a way around it and would they try and make all of the documentary film crew employees of the right so that mm -hmm. yeah of the attorneys so that they could still have the privilege and know that wasn't going to work out and so what they ended up doing was Every time they finished a tape, they FedExed it to France. Interesting. was from because the the district attorney tried to subpoena those the films. Oh yep. my gosh! And they literally had to get them out of the country. I had not even heard about. No, that. isn't that cool? Like nobody, but they didn't. Even. They didn't watch it. They didn't Ooh. go back. As soon as the tape was done, they finished the tape. They put it in a overnight FedEx envelope to France. Interesting. Yeah, which I thought was super interesting. Well, you know, it's very common for a documentary team to have two teams. Right. uh, You know, and split that. And I can understand why I thought, personally, that he having them in the room where the lawyer and and the teams were having those conversations wasn't good for Michael Peterson. No, I didn't think so. But he fed off of the He did, but not in a good way. It just, he was, ooh. Yeah. He was, uh, dare I say, a jerk. Uh, just yeah. a jerk about it yeah like here you are and i get it he was mad yeah if he really was innocent he was mad angry but none of it felt in self-defense it felt uh like he was a star mm-hmm. give me my green room and my red m&ms and that's it please ding 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 you know what i'm saying yep yep i i do and hmm uh the thing that the director found uh, super crazy he's like Michael Peterson credited the film crew being there for the whole reason that he was ever able even to get a hearing Mm -hmm. for a second trial and he said the most surreal part of it was that they had to use some of the footage from the original episodes of the documentary of Dwayne Deaver to show to the judge at the hearing to talk about how he was being untruthful and misleading, Mm -hmm. which I thought that was kind of interesting. And that's happened several times where, uh, you know, on 
the other show where we watched the local crime. Right. Um, that was part of the, yeah, that episode was yeah. that his, his monologue to the camera yeah. was really his only shot at maybe getting the DA right. to change his mind. Right. Yeah. Um, about a retrial. Right. Or about a right. a second trial to change his sentencing. Yeah. That mm-hmm. no matter how much a documentary crew tries to be unobtrusive and not affect the outcome, their the very existence, mm-hmm. the fact that they are there changes things. It does. And it's, you know, for good or bad. You know, I, I don't have an opinion about that, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's kind of interesting. It is hard because we want to see those things, but mm-hmm. you're right. Documentary crews, and from all of their efforts, there will always be a part of the story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they can do everything they can to mitigate that, and just the fact that they're there changes the way people behave. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, that is The Staircase. Interesting Poor, rest in peace, Kathleen Peterson. Whatever yes. happened to you, whether it was an owl or which is less likely, or your husband, which is more likely, or just to fall down the stairs. We're Horrible. sorry that you passed away, and we hope that uh, you have peace mm-hmm. in the next life. So, whatever that may be. So, next time. Next time. Okay, I'm super excited about this because you had, like, barely heard about this. And I have watched the entire series when it was on last fall. There was a series called You, and it's based on a book. And it's a fascinating, criny, stalker, murderous man falls in love or lust or infatuation or something with a young woman and um i think that one's going to be super interesting i think we're just going to watch the first episode it was on lifetime um but i watched the whole thing and it was my favorite guilty pleasure last uh, <laughs> last fall and it's on netflix now yes. so we can uh we can you might end up binging the whole thing um, that's but probably we're, going to happen we're, we're only going to talk about the first episode the first episode we're going to talk about the first episode so we don't spoil it for you because you know if you haven't seen it oh it's dull. Oh, that's good. It's well, like, I'm kind of a binger when it comes to Netflix. Oh, I kind of am. Uh-huh, yeah. um, like, for instance, well, and, Travelers. And this one moves really fast. Yeah. 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 Travelers yeah, was on, and, and uh-huh. it was, it's my favorite. Yeah. And they come out with, like, every 18 months, they come out with a new series because it's a Netflix show. Right. And I watch it, and it takes me, like, three days. Uh-huh. And then I'm like, no. Uh-huh. It's done. It's like you get to the end of the oh, and you're like, but I wasn't finished. I wasn't finished. <laughs> they should film like three seasons in a row so that they can just... So that I can binge it all. Yeah, that's not how these things work, unfortunately. Nope. But so next time you, if you haven't seen it, watch the first episode. We'll be talking about it in a couple of weeks. We're so glad that you were here with us. If you want to see any of the sources that I talked about today or things that I used to help inform this discussion or that Jackie used to inform our discussion today, I will put them all on our social media. You can find us on Twitter at KillerFunPod. You can find us on Facebook, Killer Fun Podcast, exploring the intersection of crime and entertainment. Or you can email us, killerfunpodcast at gmail.com. So let us know what you thought. Do, do you think that owl theory holds water? Do you think that Michael Peterson was absolutely innocent? We would 
love to know. We'd love to know what you think and why. And, you know, you're absolutely entitled to your own opinion. We have an opinion about this, but of course, there we've only seen what the documentary showed us and what we've read online. That's not necessarily a... Uh, well, full picture yeah and i you know and this is one of those cases i don't think we'll ever know but we'd love to discuss it because i'm sure somebody's sitting out there having some major mind-blowing kind of revelation about yeah. all of this and so go comment let's start a discussion thread yeah please and do. uh and and keep it nice and um <laughs> and then we'll have a nice discussion about it yeah, and awesome. then and then michael will not be forgotten <laughs> yeah oh yeah oops because that's what he <laughs> That's what he wanted most. All right. <laughs> but we will not forget Kathleen either. No, absolutely <laughs> not. All right. Thank you so much. We'll see you soon. Nice. See you next time.